The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. God's Word is full of surprises, isn't it? I read Malachi towards the end of last year, and I thought, this will make a nice short sermon series that will fit into the Christmas season. So we'll do a survey of Malachi, and we'll take it in four sermons. I thought a brief survey would be enjoyable. But as it is with God's Word, really the striking relevance of this book has been wonderfully surprising to me. And I trust that these nine sermons have profited your souls. As we come to these final words in the book of Malachi, the last page of the Old Testament, the last words God would speak for 400 years, we see that Malachi 4, 4 to 6 actually is a very fitting conclusion, not only to the book of Malachi, but really to the Old Testament. And so, in light of the first and the second advent of the Son of Righteousness, Malachi calls us, those who love and fear the Lord, to obey Him and to look to Him to fulfill His word. And in this word, we see tonight a prophetic word, I will send Elijah and he will restore the hearts of fathers and children. And so as we draw this book to a close and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, let's begin by looking at verse 4. The prophet says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. You might recall that as we started this this survey of Malachi, that the people were in spiritual decline. They were in moral decline. They were departing from the ways of God. They were still doing all the external stuff. They weren't doing it very well, but they were still doing the external stuff, but their hearts were far from God. And so the book of Malachi, in many ways, is a, is a perpetual, continual call to the people of God back to obedience, back to covenant fidelity. And so as, as Malachi ends this book, God says through Malachi, remember, remember. And, and what's fascinating about that one word is that God knows that we all suffer from short-term spiritual memory loss. He is continually, constantly telling us, remember. As you read through the book of Deuteronomy, you actually you see this call to remember 15 times in the book of Deuteronomy. Remember, don't forget. Remember, don't forget. Remember, don't forget. And if you look up all of those, all of those calls to remember, what you find out is that to remember, first of all, means to look back to God's mighty deeds of deliverance and redemption. And and what that included was not just think back to the glory of the Red Sea, think back to the glory of deliverance from from the bondage of Egypt, but but it also meant think back, look back, not only to God's mighty deeds of deliverance, but look back to what you were delivered out from. Remember your days of bondage. Remember your days of slavery. Remember the days when you were under the oppression of the Egyptians. And in light of that, then remember, think back, recall to my outstretched arm by which I delivered you from the house of bondage and from slavery in Egypt. 
And so the call to remember was always a call to remember God's gracious, sovereign power in redemption. But it was also a call to remember what we were redeemed out from. Secondly, to remember, as you see this in the book of Deuteronomy, to remember is to bring to mind also the obligations of the covenant. And it is a call then to follow through with loving obedience. And in that context, the call to remember is, looks like this. Remember what God calls you to do. Remember the faithfulness He calls you to. Remember the obedience He calls you to. And within that broader context, remember often how we have failed in that. In a sense, is, is this not the very significance of the Lord's Supper itself? Remember. Think back to our lost estate. Remember, think back to our bondage and sin. Remember, think back to Christ's mighty deliverance, His work of redemption on our behalf on the cross. And recall and now renew afresh yourself in your discipleship to the Lord Jesus. That's what the Lord's Supper calls us to again and again and again. It's no wonder that Jesus says, do this in remembrance. Of me. And so Malachi says, remember, remember specifically though the law of Moses, my servant. Now you need to remember that from an Old Testament perspective, from the view of redemptive history, Moses himself is the fountainhead of all Old Testament revelation, and he is the foundation of all prophetic activity. The Mosaic covenant actually frames up all of the prophetic ministry that would take place in Israel. The prophets would come on the scene when the people would begin to break covenant and become faithless to God and and unfaithful to the covenant. And the prophets would come and their denunciations were basically nothing more than the application of the covenant curses outlined in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. And the prophets promises of blessing, oftentimes encompassing the coming of Messiah, were the application and fulfillment of the covenant blessings that were promised in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. And so here the prophet says, remember, recall, bring to mind the law of Moses, my servant. That is the statutes and the ordinances. What the prophet is saying to the people as he closes this book, what the prophet is is driving home to a spiritually lazy people, is he's driving home, remember the statutes and the ordinances. In other words, remember the covenant. Remember your commitments. Remember your faith in God. Remember the obligations that are entailed in knowing God. Remember the obligations that are entailed in God knowing you. Remember His laws, remember His commandments, remember His regulations. And the prophet says, which I commanded him on Horeb, that is Sinai, for all Israel. God, speaking through the prophet, reminds the people that this law that He's calling them to remember is not ultimately Moses' law. It's ultimately God's law. This this law that he calls them to remember was not the law of the Chaldeans adapted for the Israelites. It was the law that was revealed and delivered at Sinai or Mount Horeb. 
And it wasn't a law just for the spiritually elite, the few, the proud, the Marines. It was actually delivered for all of Israel. All of God's people were to live in obedience to the law of God. It was a covenant with the God of Jacob, with the people of Jacob. In a sense, what the prophet is calling the people to when he says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which God gave, which I gave to you on Mount Horeb. What what he's calling them to do is simply what Jesus calls us to do in John chapter 14 and verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. Remember. Remember the law of Moses. John Piper writes, he says, The past exerts power in the present through the gift of memory. Did you get that? The past exerts power in the present through the gift of memory. Memory is power. And the person who says that history is bunk or that the past is gone and all that matters is the present just doesn't know much about real life. In real life, memory has tremendous power to inspire and to guide. Remember the law of Moses. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as Malachi begins to close this little treatise to his people, he calls them on God's behalf to obedience. And then God continues, and and he says in verse 5 something absolutely amazing. He says, Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so notice the way that this works. Verse 4 is remember, that is look back. And now the call is, now look forward. God is going to do something else. And really, that constitutes the heart of biblical ethics. Look back at what God has done. Look forward to what God is going to do. And here, God says, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. By the way, that looking back and looking forward, isn't that also what we do in the Lord's Supper as well? We look back, and then we sang it tonight, and then we look till He comes. And then God says, I'm going to send you Elijah. Now, what's interesting about this to me is that God could have picked anybody. He could have said something like, Behold, I'm going to send you Moses. To me, that would make a tremendous amount of sense because he just says, remember the law of my servant Moses. And in fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you Moses. But he doesn't say that. Or he could have said, I'm going to send you um, David. And in fact, you have a promise like that in Ezekiel 34. I'm going to send you David. And that would have been good. I'm going to send you the king who's going to rule over you in righteousness and justice and so forth. But he doesn't say that either. He actually says, I'm going to send you Elijah The prophet. Why Elijah? The prophet Elijah was the most significant prophet next to Moses in the history of Israel in terms of his impact on the nation. In fact, Elijah is Indeed, the logical choice for God to sin because Elijah himself, during his own time of ministry, was indeed a new Moses to the people of God. 
Uh, Just stop and consider these parallels. First of all, Moses and Elijah are linked together many times. Right here, Malachi 4, 4 and 5. And then they're also linked together at some other very significant event on a significant mountain in Matthew chapter 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus the Son on the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah on Horeb, which remember is Sinai, is almost a replay of Moses on Horeb, comparing 1 Kings 19 with Exodus 19. Both Moses and Elijah fasted for 40 days. Elijah, the Elijah and Elisha succession parallels the Moses-Joshua succession. Both Moses and Elijah were covenant mediators and covenant prosecutors, both Moses and Elijah were instruments of unprecedented, miraculous power and demonstration of miracles and signs and wonders. And both Moses and Elijah have no gravestone that you can go and look at today. Where's Moses' body? (laughs) Who knows? Where's Elijah's body? It's in heaven. Remember, both of them, their bodies could not be found on the one hand because God concealed that from the people of Israel, from Moses, and God translated Elijah into heaven on a chariot of fire. And so, Elijah, because of his significant impact on the nation as a new Moses, I mean, here is a man of incredible courage. Here is a man who calls the nation to repentance. Here is a man who is absolutely fearless. Here is a man who who wears camel hair and a leather belt and gets down to brass tacks with the people of God. No no, uh, user-friendly sermons from Elijah. It was straightforward, confrontational, direct. And he took on kings, and he took on queens, and he took on prophets of Baal, and he was absolutely fearless. And so Elijah becomes the eschatological figure who is the precursor for the end of the age. In other words, from the perspective of redemptive history, there is one prophet who stands out logically, head and shoulders above everybody else that God would actually send before he closes the curtain on the human race, and it is Elijah the Tishbite. And in that sense, Elijah is a type of John the Baptist. I'd remind you, even in the book of Malachi, look back at Malachi chapter 3. Verse 1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In the first part of verse 1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Who is he speaking of? He is speaking of John the Baptist. And so, Elijah is, ends up being a type of John the Baptist. And in fact, Malachi 4, 5 says, Elijah is going to return. And you know what Jesus says? John was Elijah who is to come. Take your Bibles and and, and look at Matthew chapter 11. 
Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Turn over to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 10. The disciples have a question of basic eschatology. They say, the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. And notice, pay attention to that. Will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. From Jesus' perspective, which by the way is infallible, inerrant, and completely authoritative... Okay, So when Jesus interprets Malachi 4.5 for us to mean that this is a reference to John the Baptist, you can take that to the bank. That is the final answer. All right, And so Jesus says that this John the Baptist, his cousin, who is the forerun- his forerunner, is indeed Elijah who was to come. And in fact, does not even his father Zacharias say that this son of his would come in the spirit And in the power of Elijah. And in fact, John picked his wardrobe. Not because camel hair and leather belts were on sale at Walmart. But because he was wearing the clothing of Elijah the prophet. And so... Malachi 4, 5, behold, Elijah is coming. I'm going to send Elijah. And Jesus says, he's come. John the Baptist is Elijah. Now, don't think for a minute, and I have to say this because we we have so much craziness around. Don't think in terms of reincarnation. Okay, Think in terms of Elijah, the Old Testament type, John the Baptist as the New Testament antitype or fulfillment of the type. He comes in the spirit of Elijah, in the power of Elijah. He's not Elijah reincarnated. Now, there's another sense in which Elijah has come as well, because I would suggest to you that Elijah actually is a type of the church. In fact, and we don't have time to go into this, we already went into this in the year 2002, and I'm sure you all remember that, okay? But in Revelation chapter 11... You have two pictures of the church. You have the temple in verses 1 and 2. And then you have these two witnesses in verses 3 through 13. And I would suggest that the two witnesses actually are Elijah and Moses. And Elijah and Moses serve in Revelation 11 as types of the church. The church confronting the world. The church witnessing to the world. And of course, what happens to the two witnesses? Remember... They're killed. 
And so the, the whole world is happy. They throw a party when the two witnesses are killed. But then what happens? Jesus raises them up from the dead. And so at the end of the age, this is how I understand this, at the end of the age, persecution increases and it looks as if the church is dead and is silenced, but there is a triumphant resurrection of the witnesses. And just like Elijah, the church is raised up in Christ's power and ultimately taken to heaven. And the picture that you have in Revelation chapter 11 is that the church, just like Elijah, is a bold witness that cannot ultimately be silenced by kings or queens or kingdoms or empires. In other words, the jackboot, the stake, the firing squad, the lion's dens, the prisons, the inquisitions cannot ultimately silence the church of God upon whom the spirit of Elijah rests. Now, as we think in terms of Malachi 4, I would suggest to you that this prophetic promise, behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet finds its fulfillment first in the coming of my messenger, Malachi 3.1, in John the Baptist. And it also finds its fulfillment in the church as God's faithful witness in this world before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now notice again in Malachi 4. Notice what the ministry of Elijah is to do. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The very last words that God speaks for 400 years goes like this. So that I will not smite the land with a curse. The ministry of restoration that's in view here. Remember, remember the paradigm. Remember the law of Moses and look forward to the restoration to be brought about by the coming prophet Elijah. And that, that restoration is what is now in view. And so the ministry of restoration begins with John's ministry as the precursor to the coming of the kingdom. In fact, again, keep your finger there in Luke 1 and, or uh, Malachi 4 and turn over to Luke 1. Do you remember in the passage that we read from Matthew 17, Jesus says, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. That's what he has in view here, the restoration of all things. But notice in in Luke chapter 1, in verse 17, speaking of John the Baptist, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, notice, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The ministry of John the Baptist or the ministry of Elijah the prophet that is in view here is actually a restoration ministry of getting people back in right relationship with God. But notice, back in Malachi chapter 4, notice the the, the very specific way in which this promise of restoration is stated. It's not stated in the very general way that Jesus states it in Matthew 17. He doesn't just say that Elijah the prophet is coming and will restore all things. That's the way Jesus puts it. 
He doesn't even put it in the more generic way that the angel says to uh, Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. In the, in the prophecy itself, it is so specific. The realm of restoration, notice, the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Specifically, the promise of restoration is to fathers and to children. And and, and in fact, the point is, is that this restoration is reconciliation. In fact, the way that the Septuagint translates this, it understands the language of fathers and children as metaphorical, just simply meaning everybody. That's the idea, is that there will be reconciliation across the board. Fathers to children, children to fathers. In other words, two categories of people that often are at odds, used as, uh, as, as it were, symbolic uh, meaning to demonstrate that restoration and reconciliation is coming through the ministry of the kingdom of God. But the question is, and this is the question that struck me, if that's true, and I'm sure that it is, why in the world does God specifically identify the realm of the family to make his point? He uses Elijah for a specific reason, and now he's speaking of restoration and reconciliation that's going to come when the kingdom of God comes with power through the ministry of John the Baptist, and then Jesus, and then through the perpetuation of the church of God in the world. And and, and he says that that realm of restoration is going to be the family. If the family stands for something bigger outside of itself, why use, it as, why use the family at all? I would suggest to you that the family is used as the realm of restoration and reconciliation because the family is supposed to be the greatest blessing, the greatest source of joy, the greatest relationships in all of the world. And fathers are supposed to love and lead and be loved and respected. And children are to love and to follow and to obey. And, and the family unit, as God designed it, is to be this source of blessing and joy and tight relationships. And yet, and yet, the family is often the greatest source of pain. The family is often the arena of the most fragmented relationships. The family is the realm of the most hideous and painful abuse. The family can often be that realm in which neglect and disappointment reign. The family is often where sin manifests itself in its ugliest, most alienating forms. And so as God tells his people, I'm going to send Elijah. And he's going to come and he's going to bring restoration and he's going to bring reconciliation. In fact, this reconciliation is going to impact fathers to children and children to fathers God is, as it were, putting his finger on the most exposed nerve of our soul. This restoration is for rebellious children. This restoration is for poor parents. 
And it stands for all broken relationships which are not what God has designed. And so the great promise that is here is this, the restorative power of the gospel, inaugurated by John and perpetuated by the church, is a glorious power which can and does bring restoration and reconciliation to those relationships in life that are most ravished by sin. That's the power of the gospel. We need to remember that there is, there is a vertical element to the gospel where we are reconciled to God as those who are fallen and rebelled against God. But there is also a horizontal element to the gospel where God brings reconciliation on a horizontal level and he breaks down barriers and brings reconciliation even in those areas of life where there is the most pain and the most disruption and the most fragmentation of all. He tells us the reason. It's to avoid God's curse. It's to avoid God's curse. Look at the culture around you. Look at the society around you. Look at the state of the family. Look at fathers and mothers and children. There is a disintegration that is taking place all around us that should appall us and scare us and cause us to cry out to God, what in the world is happening? What we see all around us is, as it were, in in a real sense, God's judgment on a society that will no longer honor Him as God. The way that we see society disintegrating morally and familially before our very eyes is no accident. God says to his people, I'm sending you the agent of restoration. I'm sending you the prophet of reconciliation. I'm bringing to you the one who is indeed the precursor to the coming kingdom. And with that kingdom, there comes power, the power to heal, the power to restore, the power to reconcile. And so it delivers those who participate of its fruit, those who, who engage, who, who, who embrace the blessing of that restoration and reconciliation. It is deliverance from the curse of God. The period of restoration, it's before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so between the first and second advents, the time of the already and the not yet, the day of salvation that precedes the day of judgment, that is today, that is right now. And so what we can say with confidence is that this promise that God gives to his people is, is for us Today, that restoration, that reconciliation that comes through the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of the church upon whom the spirit of Elijah rests is a ministry of reconciliation and healing. God says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do it. In most amazing ways.
Now, for sure, there, there is a sense in which the gospel does bring division. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 10 that he did not come to bring peace, but a sword and to set father against mother and, and, and son against uh, parents and, and daughters against mothers, so forth. And, and, and that division of the gospel comes because of the loyalty that one has to Jesus. But there's also a sense in which the kingdom of God comes and the gospel is ministered in the spirit and the power of that prophet Elijah that comes to us that does indeed bring reconciliation and peace through the cross. Do you know what that means? That means that pain and disappointment and hurt and neglect and abuse doesn't just get washed away. But when the Son of Righteousness rises upon you with healing in His wings, He can bring the restoration and the reconciliation that our hearts long for, even in the midst of the most painful of all relationships. And so as we conclude this book of Malachi, God's word to us is always a call to remember the past, Remember his mighty deeds. Remember what he's called us to. And also look ahead to the future with confidence. God is going to do great things. We must remember, especially tonight as we come to the Lord's table, we must remember Christ's deliverance. But we also must remember not only the deliverance from the penalty of sin that Jesus brings us, we must remember also the deliverance from the power of sin and the call to obedience to his commandments. We have to take John 14, 15 to heart. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's Jesus' word to us tonight. But the great word of hope right in the midst of these closing words of the last page of the Old Testament is this, the gospel always comes with power to heal and restore even those relationships most radically impacted by sin. I read something by John Piper this week that I found so helpful. He says, notice that the text does not say that any father or child can turn the heart of the other. You you need to understand that before you go home tonight. The text does not say that you can turn the heart of your child or that you can turn the heart of your parent. That is not your responsibility, but your own heart is your responsibility. So the word of God to fathers and mothers today is this. Turn your heart to your children. Don't give them the dregs of your life. Turn your hearts to your children. Don't be unkind. Don't constantly criticize. Turn your hearts to your children. Let the bitterness go. At least from your side, forgive and roll the burden onto God. The word to children is this, turn your hearts towards your father and your mother. Don't rebel, but obey. Turn your hearts towards your father and your mother, your grandparents. Don't forget them. Don't neglect them. Care for them. Turn your heart towards your father. The road to restoration may be as long as life. Beloved, sin fragments and destroys relationships. And pride and criticism and anger and unforgiveness all lead towards alienation 
But the gospel of the kingdom is a gospel of reconciliation. And so let go of the pride and let go of the critical heart and let go of the anger because God has sent His Son who is indeed the Son of righteousness and there is healing in His wings. There is healing for broken hearts. There is healing for broken relationships. There is healing for broken lives. And I would remind us tonight that it is the bread and the cup which speak reconciliation to us. It is those symbols of Jesus' body and blood that speak forgiveness to us and also speak forgiveness through us to one another, even fathers to children and children to fathers. Thanks be to God for a reconciling Savior. Thanks be to God for a powerful gospel that not only has healed our relationship to God, but has the power to heal our relationship even in the most painful areas of life. Let's pray. Father, we pray that even as the church bears witness to the restoration as Elijah and John the Baptist did, we pray that tonight your Holy Spirit would minister that reconciliation and restoration And Father, we ask that you would remind us through these very tangible things of bread and the cup that you have reconciled yourself to us and you have given us the power to be reconciled to each other. Lord, even those strained family relationships, even those difficult ones, you have given the power of reconciliation. You have, you have actually, because of the cross, put it in our hearts to be able to forgive. We pray, Father, that you would minister that to us tonight powerfully through your word and spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.